Good morning. Um, if you have your Bible, if you have your Bibles, would you please open them to James chapter three, beginning in verse thirteen? Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray. God, I pray that um, the words that are about to come next, any of those that would come from the wisdom of this world would slide off like Teflon. And Father, the words that come from your spirit that are given to instruct us in true life, God, I pray that they would go down deep, that they would be planted deep in our hearts, that they might reap a harvest of righteousness in our lives. Amen. In our section today, James addresses the topic of wisdom. And we often think of wisdom as that thing that we ask God for when we have a decision to make. What college should I go to? What job should I take? Where should I live? What house should I buy? But in the Bible, wisdom is much more than knowing what the right decision is to make. In scripture, a wise person is someone who navigates life well. The book of Proverbs was written with the purpose of making the reader wiser, of helping that person know how to navigate life. And Proverbs makes clear from the very first chapter that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is no true wisdom without God. But in his letter to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations, James suggests that there are some who have bought into a false wisdom, a worldly wisdom, whose source is Satan himself. And lest we think that this is a new phenomenon in the first century among James's readers, we have Psalm 49 to show us that there has always been a choice as to whose wisdom we will pursue, in whom we will put our trust, and the choice we make has eternal consequences. Reading from Psalm 49, beginning in verse 5. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. For all can see that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. But man, despite his riches, does not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. 
This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. The psalmist knows what the writer of Proverbs knows, what James knows, that there is no wisdom apart from God, and that those who trust in themselves rather than in God, in their wealth, in their possessions, in their own sayings and understanding, they will not endure beyond this world whose wisdom they have pursued. In next week's section of his letter, James will make clear that the two kinds of wisdom, which come from two different kingdoms, the world's and God's, are diametrically opposed to one another. You can't be loyal to both. In fact, James will contend that being loyal to one makes you the enemy of the other. You can't be a Ravens fan and a Steelers fan. And so James challenges his readers here in our section today to consider what kind of wisdom they're pursuing. And in the same way that our actions or our deeds reveal what kind of faith that we have, so our actions will reveal where we're getting our wisdom from. It's interesting that James chooses envy and selfish ambition as the traits that sum up those who are pursuing worldly wisdom. It reminded me of our Roman series in chapter 7, where Paul chose coveting to sum up how sin uses the law to bring about our destruction. Our guest teacher that week, Brent Latham, made the point that the heart of coveting is, I want more, and that Paul focuses on coveting to show that our disobedience or our sin starts in the heart, desiring something other than God and his will and his ways. And another big takeaway from our study of Romans thus far is that although sin used the law do not covet to bring about our destruction, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are no longer slaves to that sin. As Joe said in in his sermon on Romans 6, we don't have to live like that anymore. The believers that James is writing to, and we who have identified ourselves with Christ in his death and resurrection, have a choice as to which kingdom we want to live in. The kingdom of this world, where there's envy and selfish ambition and disorder and every kind of evil practice, or the kingdom of God, where there's peace and mercy and good fruit. And the choice regarding which kingdom we want to live in, whose wisdom we will embrace, that's a choice we make once when we accept Jesus' invitation to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, but it's also a choice we make with every decision we make every day. The Apostle Peter makes clear in his second letter, the first chapter beginning in verse 3, his, meaning God's, divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness 
so that we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption caused in this world caused by evil desires. God has already provided us with all that we need to be able to live in the reality of his kingdom, even as we are still in the world, surrounded by its wisdom and its ways. So according to James, what does it look like to live in God's kingdom, to participate in the divine nature, to navigate life well, to have true wisdom, to, as the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, take hold of the life that is truly life. Well, in verse 13, James says it means to act with humility, or in some translations, meekness. This doesn't mean having a low opinion of oneself. Vine, in his expository dictionary of New Testament words, makes the point that one is not occupied with self at all. Vine continues, the common assumption is that when a man is meek or humble, it's because he cannot help himself. But the Lord was meek because he had the infinite resources of God at his command. That's what James means when he says deeds are done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Deeds done with the infinite resources God has made available to us. They aren't deeds or actions that we drum up on our own or that we do in our own strength. They're those that flow out of a partnership with a God whose resources are infinite. In verse 17, James further describes what a life well-lived will look like. It will be pure, undefiled by a corrupt world full of sin. It will love peace, not seeking arguments and quarrels, but instead seeking wholeness in all arenas, physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual. It will mean being considerate, thoughtful, as the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, looking not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. I'm reminded of our verse today from This Little Light of Mine. Living in the reality of God's kingdom means being submissive. The word used here, eupathes, means being open to being persuaded, obeying easily. Those who have known and experienced God's greatness and his goodness find it easy to trust him and obey him when they hear his voice. Living in God's kingdom means being full of mercy, forgiving others because we have a true understanding of how God has forgiven us. And because, as we saw in chapter 2, we now belong to a kingdom where mercy triumphs over judgment. Living in the reality of God's kingdom and wisdom means being impartial, not showing favoritism, because as we also saw in chapter 2, favoritism is sin, and sin belongs to the false wisdom of this world. Choosing God's wisdom also means living a life that is sincere. That word literally means without hypocrisy. Those who live in the confidence and security of being God's child who have been given everything they need for life in him, they don't have to pretend to be anyone or anything else. And finally, James makes clear that a life lived in the reality of God's kingdom, 
that a life that avails itself of God's infinite resources will further that kingdom, will be part of seeing that kingdom expand and grow. The Bible is full of examples of the universal truth that you reap what you sow. In Matthew chapter 7, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in warning his listeners about false prophets, says, By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. You reap what you sow. No sane person sows Brussels sprouts thinking that they'll harvest strawberries. And in the same way, no sane person should think that he can sow conflict and division and harvest peace. Note, see the cartoon on your bulletin cover. James also made reference to this principle in the section that Mark and Kendall spoke about last week. James writes, my brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And perhaps most pertinent to our passage today, Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 7, A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Last week, Mark and Kendall referenced the second half of the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, grant that I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. This week, I was reminded of the beginning of that prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me sow pardon. Where there is doubt, let me sow faith. Where there is despair, let me sow hope. Where there is darkness, let me sow light. Where there is sadness, let me sow joy. Those who are living in the reality of God's kingdom are praying the heart of that prayer on a regular basis, asking God to provide his infinite resources and to use them as instruments to bring his kingdom to this world. So if that's what a life lived in the reality of God's kingdom looks like, how do I make my life look like that? How do I live my life in that reality? Again, I think our study of Romans points us to the answer. Romans 8, verses 12 to 14 says, We have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Remember, you've died to that way of living. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The key to living a truly wise life is not in removing you from all the world's evil influences by joining a monastery or creating a holy huddle. And it's not in trying really hard to do what you know God wants you to do and then feeling really bad when you don't succeed. No, it's in asking God's spirit to move and guide and empower and lead your heart and then obeying him when he does. 
since Joe's sermon um, on Romans 6 back in November, I have begun an experiment of sorts with the mantra, you don't have to live like that. It has become my way of, in the moment, calling on God's spirit to move and guide and lead my heart. And when I find myself feeling frustrated or impatient or angry, like that slow car in front of me, or the amateur in the self-checkout line ahead of me, or the person not living up to my expectations, I say to myself, and even out loud sometimes, you don't have to live like that. When I find myself feeling anxious about something, the weather forecast for my outdoor party, <laughs> the sermon I've been asked to give in front of a large group of people, <laughs> or the welfare of my children, I find myself saying, I now belong to a kingdom where I don't have to live like that anymore. And because I have blind spots, and because I don't always necessarily recognize when I am pursuing the world's wisdom rather than God's wisdom, I have close friends who will lovingly tell me, BJ, you don't have to live like that. So my question to you is, how do you want to live? Whose wisdom do you want to pursue? What kind of seeds do you want to sow? What kind of harvest do you want to reap? The good news is, because of Jesus, you have a choice. I'd like to close us with a prayer for spiritual wisdom that Paul prayed for the Colossian believers. This past year, Women of Hope studied Paul's letter to the Colossians, and this summer we have specifically studied this prayer. And as a result, many of us have been challenged to pray this for one another on a regular basis. So let's pray. God, we continually ask you to fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that we may live a life worthy of you and please you in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of you, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, so that we may have great endurance and patience. And give joyful thanks to you, our Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of your holy people in the kingdom of light. Amen.